Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, it's so great to be with all of you today. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. For those of you who tune in each week, it's great to have you back. I feel compelled to provide you with as much information, support, and resources as I can through our show, our interviews, and my own personal experience with breast cancer. The interviews and connecting with all of you is the fun part, but there is a lot of sweat that come with the relentless hours of post-production and editing we do each week to bring our podcast to life. I have to give a shout out to our newest sponsor, Podigy. We all wear many hats, and I think most of you know that I am no exception, hosting the podcast, running a nonprofit, and working a full-time job. But my heart and soul could not be more passionate and committed each week to delivering inspiration, hope, and support. That's why I've made the decision to team up with Podigy. If you have a podcast or thinking about starting one, I highly recommend them. They are super easy to work with and are offering our listeners 25% off your first month when you mention Breast Cancer Conversations. We know cancer takes a village, and I'm glad to have Podigy part of my support team. I'd also like to thank our patrons of the podcast. Patrons are folks who listen to the podcast and support the work that we do by making monthly contributions through Patreon. Patreon is a platform where you sign up for these monthly contributions, and in turn, you get access to exclusive benefits. If you would like to be part of this community, go to breastcancerconversations.org forward slash support to sign up. Chances are, if you're listening to this episode, it's because you personally have gone through radiation treatment, know someone who has gone through treatment, or work in the radiation oncology field. I'm a few years out from my 32 rounds of radiation, which was delivered Monday through Friday for six weeks. But as part of my own personal health and wellness plan, I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can to mitigate some of the long-term side effects from such a powerful treatment as much as possible. I recall having all of the risks associated with radiation explained to me and then signing the consent form before starting this therapy. My head was so in the game of killing the cancer that I didn't really have a chance to fully understand what radiation was, how it worked, and really what the long-term effects were going to be. I am so pleased to be connecting with Dr. Rachel Jimenez today, who is going to break down a lot of these questions. Thank you all to our community members who shared questions in advance and helped frame the conversation we have today. Dr. Jimenez is a radiation oncologist at Mass General Hospital an assistant professor of radiation oncology at the Harvard Medical School. She frames radiation for us. She gives it context and really helps the patient transition back to being a full person again. How do we go from the security of going into the hospital every day to the psychological side of needing to show up Monday through Friday? It's this dichotomy of feeling like you're nearing the end of treatment. If you had chemotherapy, your hair may be starting to grow back as you rock the peach fuzz, and yet you're going to the hospital every single day, you are still the patient. There are hazard signs everywhere, and I'm willing yet to still show up. Psychologically, this is harder. We talk not only about radiation, what to expect or defining terms, but just looking ahead to proton beam radiation and clinical trials that are involving this in the breast cancer community to minimize cardiac toxicity. Stay tuned until the end because we answer your question of why radiation increases your risk of developing lymphedema if you've had your lymph nodes removed. It's all here for you in today's episode. There's always going to be some leap of faith and some trust that you have to put into your care team, but that doesn't mean that you blindly go forward feeling uncomfortable. You're never a bother. It is absolutely our privilege and our job to take care of you. I think a lot of times patients feel like, oh, I don't want to bother them. I, you know, I called a couple weeks ago to ask a question. That's what you should be doing. That's what we want. We want to hear from you. Welcome to the conversation. So I'm Rachel Jimenez. I'm a radiation oncologist at Mass General and an assistant professor of radiation oncology at the Harvard Medical School. I have um, a few different research interests um, in addition to taking care of patients. So um, a lot of my research is focused on late toxicity from taking care of breast cancer patients as it relates to radiation, in particular to cardiac toxicities after radiation therapy for breast cancer patients. 
I'm also interested in the ethics of cancer care delivery and how patients make decisions with their doctors about cancer care. And so those have been kind of the two realms in which I've dove into academic research. One of the things that is really confusing to me about radiology is there's radiology in terms of mammography and your initial breast cancer screening. And then there's radiology in terms of the radiation treatment you get after a cancer diagnosis. Can you explain a little bit about radiation, radiation oncology, and how we can understand the differentiation between these two sectors? Yeah, so this is confusing, I think, for lots of patients. <laughs> um, so there's diagnostic radiology, and so that's a group of physicians who perform mammograms and other types of diagnostic imaging. And then there's radiation oncologists who actually are utilizing radiation to treat cancer. And they're totally separate specialties with totally separate training paths, even though they overlap in some of the imaging tools that we use to do our job. That's a really good distinguishing conversation to have. I don't think I ever realized that. It was like in my head, like the word radiation was just used interchangeably. And then it honestly dawned on me when I was going to two separate parts of my hospital and seeing two different doctors. I was like, wow, there must be something different that I don't understand here. So thank you for clarifying that. Of course, yeah. So on the treatment side, which is what you're on, Mm -hmm. I have had the pleasure of speaking with many radiologists and learning, again, this plethora of terminology that can continuously be confusing, especially for our listeners. So just to rattle off just a couple of words that I was exposed to in terms of radiation, And correct me if I'm wrong, too, because I'm sure some of them are also in the diagnostic setting and not necessarily in the treatment setting. But we were talking with some other doctors about um, molecular breast imaging, Mm -hmm. which I think might fall on the diagnostic side. We were also talking about like the tomosynthesis, yeah, diagnostics, as well as like the 3D mammograms and all sorts of like options people had. Yes. And so we were getting a lot of questions of like, okay, I go in. They do a regular mammogram. How can I feel empowered to ask for more? Mm -hmm. But it sounds like that's all on the, before they get to you side. That's right. So all of those questions, I agree, are very confusing. (laughs) Um, And all of them deal with essentially the workup to finding out if someone has a cancer. So that lies in the realm of diagnostic radiology. Okay. But I think that the idea of empowering patients to ask those questions is an important one. And I think for all of my patients, I say, you have to understand the things that you're doing so that you feel comfortable. There's always going to be some leap of faith and some trust that you have to put into your care team, but that doesn't mean that you blindly go forward feeling uncomfortable about the decisions that you make. And so it's a perfect opportunity when someone goes in for a mammogram to say, what kind of mammogram is this? Mm-hmm. And is are you guys using tomosynthesis or are you using a 3D mammogram? And what does that mean? Right. And why should I care? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think if you have a team that's looking out for you, they're going to stop and take those few minutes to explain what they're doing and why. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes all the difference in this process. And so at what in this process then do patients start to see you? So They've been through a regular screening. They, in my case, will use me as an example, get diagnosed with breast cancer. And from that moment, it was like within 48 hours, I had meetings and appointments and everything was scheduled like back to back. Yep. And I think I met with my oncologist. He was like, man, he was actually my point person for all of this. I know at different hospitals, sometimes that's your surgeon, sometimes that's your radiologist. Yep. Um, but my oncologist was like the point. And I also met with my breast surgeon and then... I don't think I met with my radiologist just yet because we were going to wait for some genetics testing to come back and kind of get some more information based on the path that we needed. Yeah, so I agree. Everyone has a slightly different path the way that cancer centers operate. Mm -hmm. Um, So the way that Mass General operates is that once a patient has been diagnosed with a breast cancer and they've had a biopsy that confirms that they have a breast cancer, we generally bring patients into what we call a multidisciplinary clinic. So that's an appointment where they see a surgeon, a medical oncologist, and a radiation oncologist all on the same day. And so we try at that point in time to frame what the story is going to be for them, right? Because Mm -hmm. each patient is different. And so there are times where I'm talking to a patient and I know based on their diagnosis, that they're going to need chemotherapy before they see me, and they're going to need surgery before they see me. And so most of our conversation is really about putting the story together. This is where I come in, 
Mm-hmm. And this is what you need to know about radiation therapy right now. Okay. There's other patients where I know that they're going to need to see me very soon because they're going to have a surgery and they need radiation. And that will be starting within a matter of weeks from the time that I meet them. Right. And then that's a much different conversation because then we're talking about the details of radiation therapy, why they need it, what the side effects are going to be like, what the logistics are. So we try to tailor that conversation to each patient. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that it's done differently in different places, but we feel like that is often the best way to give people that long view of like understanding not just where I am today and not just understanding like the next step is going to be this, but okay, this is the picture of what my treatment course is going to generally look like. I think that's really important to you because there's so much with a breast cancer diagnosis that's uncertain to at least know what that long view looks like is almost like in our control. Yes. We're like, okay, I can check the box. I know where I'm going next. I can see something at the end of that tunnel. Yeah. So that's really great that you guys do that. Yeah. And I think it's it's hard too, because you see these patients who come in and they're just clearly overwhelmed by the amount of information that is being thrown at them. And you have to tell them this journey is going to take a year. You know, for some people, this can be a very, very long process. And I think that it does them a service to be able to put that out front Mm -hmm. and say, look, we're your team and we're going to be here through this whole year, but this is a whole year of your life, right? right? And that's going to start today. And that can feel like a lot to take on, but we're going to break it up into pieces so that it doesn't completely overwhelm you. But if you have to think about work and you have to think about family and you have to think about all these other logistics about your life, let's start talking about that now. Absolutely. Dr. Uh, Jordana Phillips asked us, she, uh, she's over at uh, Beth Israel, radiologist over there, and, and she asked us um, point blank about that approach. Mm-hmm. And, and we strongly recommended that she goes right for it all. Yes. She just explained everything. And she was doing that, but she was curious what our take was with regards to our fairly extensive uh, uh, community. And mm-hmm. they all appreciate that. The diagnosis itself is a horrifying experience, but you need to know. And so bless you. I think that's great. Yeah, actually, it was a great conversation and enabled us to quickly just put out a poll to our listeners and in our newsletters, like, would you rather like know right away, even if it's overwhelming, or would you rather have things kind of piecemeal as you need to know? Hundred mm-hmm. percent was like rip the bandaid off. Know. They yeah. want to know because the waiting's almost worse. So, yeah. yes, that was our anecdotal research right there. <laughs> <laughs> so you have me intrigued. So, let, would you mind giving us a glimpse about like, let's say you are meeting with one of your patients mm-hmm. who does not need radiation right away, but it's going to be forthcoming. Yeah. What are some of the things that you would share with them about how they can prepare for it? Yep. So if I'm seeing a patient who's been newly diagnosed and they're hearing about all of the different pieces of what's going to be part of their care, I actually try to keep it pretty succinct because I think that the amount of information that's thrown at you in those visits is just, I mean, even if you have a scribe and someone's taking notes and you're recording the visit and, you know, you've gone to all of those lengths to try to keep everything organized, it's just still too much. Mm -hmm. So in those times, I really do try to keep it brief. I say, Radiation is going to be about six weeks. It's going to happen at the very end after chemotherapy and surgery are done. It's delivered every day, Monday through Friday. And each day you should expect that it's going to take about an hour start to finish. You're going to feel well during treatment. It doesn't make you sick. You can work if you feel well enough. You can exercise. You can be active. There's no restrictions on your activity during that period of time. But it's a commitment of time. Right. And I kind of laid that, the logistics of that out, because I think that's actually what people care about at that stage, right? Mm -hmm. Is, can I work? Can I support my family during that time? Yes. You know, can I start to get back to my life or am I still going to be kind of separate from the rest of the activities I want to do? Am I going to feel sick? Because I think everyone's afraid of feeling unwell, of course. Mm -hmm. Is it going to hurt me? You know, like, things that people just want to get their head around. So I try to put all that stuff up up front. And then I say, we'll talk about all the details later. Absolutely. Yes. I think that's a really good point too. I don't think I realized personally that it was going to be a Monday through Friday commitment. And I mean, that was just 
overwhelming in and of itself. You know, I think at the time I was going to chemotherapy once a week. Mm-hmm. And that seemed like, you know, every Wednesday was my treatment day. It was a whole day off of work. It was a whole day just sitting in the chair and waiting for the blood work to get done and then waiting for, you know, one chemotherapy drug. Then you have to wait some time before you can administer the next drug. So literally it was just like, you know, I joke about used to being able to close down like the bars and the nightclubs. And here <laughs> I am closing down the infusion center with yeah. like all the chemotherapy. But it was it was a commitment. And then to take that idea and go every single day, Monday through Friday, I think the mental component of just showing up somewhere, getting to that parking spot. I don't know why I was shocked, but I was like, why is the radiation in the basement? And I was like, ah, because it's radiation. It's most likely in the basement of the building, which makes sense. But then here I am like lying down, giving myself, you know, well, I wasn't giving myself, but like here I am receiving the treatment of something that is so toxic and so dangerous that it is hidden in the basement and everyone goes behind the closed doors and, Mm -hmm. you know, you see all the hazard signs everywhere. And we're willingly showing up Monday through Friday for six weeks because we're trying to save ourselves from from the cancer. So psychologically, I think it takes a toll in addition. Oh, absolutely. So when patients come to see me and they're ready for radiation, I kind of tell them that. I say, you're going to physically feel so much better than you felt when you were going through chemotherapy and surgery. Mm -hmm. You're going to have more energy. Your hair is going to be growing back. You're going to start to feel like you're reclaiming yourself. And then this happens. And psychologically, this is harder because every day you're coming into the hospital thinking about yourself like a patient. Mm -hmm. And you never did that through the rest of that treatment. You know, you'd get chemotherapy and you get a few days off where you're not constantly going into the hospital. Right. And you don't get that mental break Mm -hmm. with radiation. So I've certainly had patients tell me that psychologically it was very difficult. I think it's also difficult because it comes at the end. Mm -hmm. So you are so ready to be done with this whole process. And yet it almost adds insult to injury that we're saying, yep, we'll see you tomorrow. Exactly. (laughs) So physically, people, I think, feel well. And psychologically, I think they feel like it is just a drag. It is just a drag. I can almost sense where that finish line is. Yes. And it's still a half a mile away, and it's 110 in the shade, and they're ready to drop. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And so I think that part of my job as a radiation oncologist when I'm taking care of patients is just being able to frame that for them because we see them every week. So we have that opportunity to check in. And for the most part, the side effects from radiation in the immediate period are pretty minor. So a lot of the visit that I have with patients is really talking about everything else. Right. And a big portion of that is that transition back Mm -hmm. to not being a patient anymore. Right. And what that looks like for them and what their fears are about that. Because I think that there's a lot of anxiety and apt Mm -hmm. um, with not being, you know, you don't want to be at the hospital every day, but there's a security in that, right? There's that people are taking care of me and I'm okay because I'm going through treatment. Mm -hmm. So nothing bad can happen right now. All eyes are on you. That's right. All eyes are on me. And that stepping away, I think people feel like I want it, but it makes me a little bit uneasy. I mean, I, I don't think that we can expect people to be superhuman for this extended period of time, which Mm -hmm. is what I think a lot of women are as they go through breast cancer treatment. They put their head down and they say, I'm going to get through this and then I'm going to get through that, right? And they just will themselves through this process. And then they start to pick their head up at the end and they go, what did I just go through? And so I think that as a care provider, if we don't pay attention to that and try to help with that transition, we haven't done our job. Um, So I spend a lot of time in those visits talking to women about what that is going to look like. So who qualifies for radiation? Can you give me some examples of what that particular breast cancer thriver looks like? Just to clarify, so you're asking like which patients or what kind of diagnoses or or forms of breast cancer would necessitate getting radiation? Yes, exactly. Um, So in general, women who have a lumpectomy where the cancer is removed, but we preserve the breast generally get radiation treatment. There's a portion of elderly patients who might have small cancers removed with lumpectomy who may not need it. But the rest of the population, if they have a lumpectomy, radiation is the standard of care afterward. And then there's a subset of patients who have a mastectomy and have the breast removed, 
but have other features of their cancer that still warrant radiation. So Mm -hmm. for example, if they had a very large tumor at the time of diagnosis, if they had lymph nodes involved at the time of diagnosis, if despite their surgeon's best efforts still have positive surgical margins, meaning cancer was still left behind at the time of mastectomy, those would be reasons that they would also need radiation. That's good to know because I feel like there's always like discussion in the breast cancer field, like which one's better or, you know, especially as you're just deciding on even your surgical options. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, some people have the understanding that if I get a mastectomy, then I don't need radiation. But then there's so many factors that still may factor into that. So that's right. And I think that's where your doctors can be helpful because we can try to handicap for you what we think the likelihood is before we've done anything, whether we think you would need radiation therapy. And so I think the nice thing about having a multidisciplinary team who meets you at the outset is that they all talk together, right? And they can talk about all of those different options with you and take you through, you know, this is the advantage of this particular way of doing it. This is the advantage of this particular way of doing it so that you can make a decision that feels empowered for you. Have you ever come across anyone who's refused radiation? Oh, all the time. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I was just so like, okay, this is what the doctor said. Doctor's orders. I followed my path. So they exist, these people out there. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Everyone has their own mind. Yes. Um, I think we see patients all the time who refuse different aspects of therapy. So Mm -hmm. I think it makes a lot of sense to me. This is a really scary process. And we're suggesting that people do things to their body that we would never, ever in the real world think is a good idea. And yet we know that these things work in curing cancer. And so I think we see patients all the time who say, like, the idea of chemotherapy so frightens me that I I just can't do it. Or the idea of radiation is so scary to me, so overwhelming that I just, I can't. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember going in, for anyone who is listening who has not gone through radiotherapy before, I remember going in for my, like, the markup piece where they, like, lie you in, they put you in this mold, and you can probably articulate this a lot better than I am. I just remember it was about four weeks after surgery, which for me felt too soon because I still have drains coming out. I have scars that are healing and I was nervous about infection, but right away they're like, nope, four weeks, you'll be fine. So I'm like, I guess this is what they do. And I had to put my hands over my head in these molds. And I just remember I could barely put my hands over my head. I didn't have that level of mobility mm-hmm. and they're, it took a little bit of time. They're putting me in this mold. So that way Monday through Friday, I can show up in the exact same position. Mm-hmm. And then I think I got three little tattoo shots. Yes. So that way you know exactly where like the beams are lining up. And it didn't really hurt. They were just like little pricks. Yeah. So that wasn't a big deal, but they are permanent. So I feel like I have tattoos now. <laughs> um, so that's always like a fun one. Like, guess what I did? I got tattoos. <laughs> but the treatment itself did not actually hurt. Mm-hmm. So that's really good to know. Like you show up, you lie down and it was over very quickly took longer to like put the creams on and get dressed yes. and everything afterwards. <laughs> but do you mind sharing and maybe articulating a, a little bit better than what I just did in terms of, okay, someone just comes in, they know they need radiation. What can they expect? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. So so when a patient needs radiation therapy and I've met with them and we've talked all about kind of the logistics and the side effects and all of that, the first step in the process is to have a planning appointment. And so that's what you were talking about with the CAT scan and like putting yourself in a mold. So the idea is that every person anatomically is different from another. And so when we're designing a radiation plan, ostensibly what we're doing is we're creating a topographic map of your body and overlaying different amounts of radiation on different parts of you. Mm -hmm. And so that means we have to be really precise about each person's anatomy. So the best way for us to do that is to actually do a CAT scan of each patient in the position that they'll be in when they get radiation. So that's what you were alluding to, where you said you're lying down with your arms above your head. And the reason we do that is because we just don't want to put your arms in the way of your breast. Right. So we have patients lay down on their back. For certain treatments, they can lay on their stomach, but it's very common for patients to lay on their back with their arms above their head. Mm -hmm. And then we take a CAT scan of you in that position. And that's like the gold standard of you. That's exactly how we think about your position for the rest of your treatment. Mm -hmm. And then we use those pictures from the CAT scan not to diagnose anything, but to plan out exactly where the radiation goes and exactly where we want to avoid putting radiation. Oh, okay. So the tattoos that you talk about, 
we use not for the beams exactly. We put them on parts of your body that are very stable. Usually they go underneath your arm on your rib cage or in your, along your sternum in the middle of your chest. And that's just because those are bony parts that are not going to move or wobble. Got it. The reason why we put them there is because, as I mentioned, this is an anatomic treatment. So if we design a certain beam of radiation to enter your body in a certain place, we have to make sure we put you exactly back in that place every day. Got it. And so the tattoos are really there to line you up to the original CAT scan that you had the first time. And so that mold is the same thing. It's just another way of trying to secure and put you back in to the position that you were in the first time. That's the planning appointment. And then generally, patients will meet with a nurse or some other provider at that point to talk about skincare Mm -hmm. and how to take care of their skin. And then within usually about a week is when the radiation plan that the radiation oncologist designs is ready. And then people can come back and start getting their treatment every day. And so when they come in every day, it's a little bit like rinse and repeat. You lay down in that same exact position. Mm -hmm. You have a team of therapists who help position you back into that original position. And they use that CAT scan, again, as the gold standard of where your body should be. And then once they're happy with your positioning, they deliver the radiation out of the machine, which takes a minute. It's very quick. Mm -hmm. And then you go about your day. And what happens during this moment, this one minute of radiation? Does it penetrate all the way through your body? Does it skin the surface? Like when you're lining us up Mm -hmm. visually, what happens? So because, again, we're thinking about you in three dimensions and we're trying to deliver radiation to very specific parts of you, the CAT scan gives us that three-dimensional imaging. But there are things that we use in the treatment room that also help to look at your your like body surface so that we can make sure that you're in the right position for treatment. So I don't know if this is something that you experienced when you went through radiation, but there are very common cameras that we use that take a 3D surface image of the patient every day in the treatment room. So you're lying there and these cameras take this 3D rendering of you. Um, And that allows us to then overlay today's rendering of your body position with that original CAT scan and make adjustments to make sure that we're getting you exactly back in the same position. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, your arm's up a little bit higher than yesterday. So we're going to bring that. Um, Mobility is increasing, which is always a good sign. (laughs) Exactly. So as patients are getting further away from surgery and going to physical therapy and stretching, it's much easier for them to get their arms up. But we have to be true to that original scan. So they're Mm -hmm. always making these little adjustments to make sure that we get you right back into the original position. And then the radiation beams themselves are penetrating the tissue. Okay. So the whole point of the x-rays, and for those of you who are listening who don't know, radiation is just x-rays. The same x-rays they use to make a mammogram, they use to treat cancer. Okay. Which also sounds counterintuitive, but we're using different energies of radiation in order to penetrate tissue deeply instead of just trying to develop a film of your breast. So... Those radiation beams, um, which again, just x-rays, are directed at very specific beam angles so that we avoid most of your normal tissue. Everything is designed to treat the areas at risk. So if your breast is there after a lumpectomy, it's to treat the breast tissue. If your breast is no longer there, it's to treat the skin overlying the um, chest wall where you had your breast or some of the lymph nodes that sit underneath your arm or under your collarbone and to stay away from the rest (laughs) of your body. Yes. And so we're always using the ideal geometry around each patient Mm -hmm. to do that. I think one of the things that I hear about from patients the most, like all of the questions that people ask me as they're going through radiation, is like, what are all these different types of radiation? And what type am I getting? And I think it's needlessly complicated, so maybe I can try to break that down a little bit. Please, absolutely. So what I tell my patients is you're getting x-rays. It doesn't matter what machine it comes out of. You know, there's a million different machines that are named many different things, and that's all advertising. Um, (laughs) And so you can imagine just like anything else in this world, there are lots of different companies who have different ways of delivering x-rays from different types of machines, but everything's x-rays. And there are certain advantages and disadvantages to different types of um, delivery techniques. 
But that's where your radiation oncologist comes in and their job is to figure out the best one for you. Okay. They may talk to you about what some of those techniques are or they might not. If you're interested in them, you should definitely ask um, because we're all a little bit tech oriented. So we'll be only too happy to explain it to you. Excellent. Um, But I think for some people, they don't want to know either. Right. Because I think it can feel very overwhelming to try to process all of these technical details sitting under a treatment machine every day. Sure. For a very small subset of patients that I treat, um, they don't receive X-ray-based radiation. They receive a special type of radiation that's called proton beam radiation. And I think proton beam radiation is not very well understood overall in cancer care. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea behind proton beam radiation is it is still radiation like x-rays, but instead of using accelerating x-rays, we're accelerating protons, so a subatomic particle. And the idea is that the way that energy is released from protons, it allows us to essentially deposit all of that radiation dose that we're trying to deposit in the area that we're treating without having any additional radiation beyond the area that we're trying to treat. And so that allows us to spare normal tissue a bit better. It's much more precise in terms of like the area in which it's treating? In a way, yeah. So x-rays, by virtue of being x-rays, they're so light, right? In terms of matter that they just keep traveling. So if you have an x-ray, like a chest x-ray, the x-rays come at you, they go right through you, they hit the film, and then the film develops your, the image of your chest, right? So we rely on the fact that the x-rays keep moving all the way through you. Yep. Protons are different. They're going to stop at a very precise point in space, and they don't keep traveling. Okay. And so when we design radiation using x-rays, the whole idea is get the right geometry so that x-rays don't keep traveling through normal tissue. With protons, the geometry is less important. We're trying to hit the target, but we know anything beyond the target won't get any radiation. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Is is there a measure that you take to stop that proton? No, it's just the the actual physical property of the proton. So essentially the radiation beam terminates as soon as the energy from the proton has been deposited. So as soon as we design that plan, we know exactly where it's going to stop. Wow. The idea behind protons is that for patients who have normal tissue that's close to the area that we're trying to treat, it might do a better job trying to spare radiation exposure to those normal parts of you that we're not trying to give radiation to. So at the moment, proton beam therapy is really reserved for kids who have developing tissue But in the breast cancer realm, there are a number of clinical trials that are exploring the use of proton beam radiation as a way to spare cardiac toxicity. So the heart is so close to the breast or to the chest wall. And we know from lots of data, um, and I'm sure you're aware of some of this and your, your listeners too, that radiation can be cardiotoxic, that it can increase the risk of heart failure and coronary artery disease. And so our job is to be very careful about how we design our radiation plans to minimize that risk. But potentially, protons may be a way mm-hmm. to spare that for patients. Excellent. And you said that early on that some of your personal like, interest and in research is around that toxicity. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that really caught me off guard too. Just like anything in the hospital, you're signing away your life on these consent forms. Yes. And I remember having a very long conversation with all of the risks associated with radiation. Mm-hmm. I joke about it now because I'm like, it's not like I was going to say no. Like, I do need <laughs> this. I, I don't want to have cancer. Yeah. But absolutely, like the radiation is so close to your heart, to your lungs. <laughs> and, you know, I think being a younger woman diagnosed with breast cancer, I am very concerned, you know, not just five years out, but what is the 10-year, 20-year, 80-year plan? Because I want to live a very long and fulfilled life. So this is something, too, as the studies are catching up also. Like, there's a lot of more information, I think, getting developed now that even two or five years ago was not available in terms of, like, the longer-term effects. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's true, too, for chemotherapy. Yes. And we're seeing that there's a lot more attention being paid now to this idea of survivorship. We've cured patients of breast cancer. That's great. And the way that we can do that now 
has grown, right? There's so many more interventions and therapeutics, but what happens when people are done Mm -hmm. and what's their quality of life like? And I think people are finally paying attention to that in a very real way, overdue, but I think that it's now it's starting to happen. You know, I think um, what William was mentioning earlier with like the PTSD and everything right afterwards, personally, like I'm in a really good space right now, which is very exciting to be able to say out loud. But there was a time and not going to wood, hopefully it doesn't return anytime soon, but where every little like hiccup or pain or shortness of breath mm-hmm. would immediately trigger, oh my gosh, like I have it's a back. cough, I have a cold, it traveled to my lungs mm-hmm. or you know, I have a lot of good friends in the breast cancer community and we're always like signing up for different like road races and trying to stay active mm-hmm. post-cancer. Mm-hmm. And we're like, do we develop asthma? Or like, why can't we breathe anymore? Or like just the longer term effects of whether it's the hormonal therapies we're on, mm-hmm. the effects of the radiation, the lingering effects of the chemotherapy. And so for better, or for worse, we always seem to bring it back to, oh, I had breast cancer. So this is just now the new normal. Yeah. And that's super anecdotal too. It could just be, as my doctor said, it could just be allergies and <laughs> everyone is dealing with that right now. But I think it's something that's always in the back of our mind that we went through so much treatment yeah. that, you know, we don't know quite yet what to expect. And as you transition back into quote, like the real world, mm-hmm. you're now back seeing your primary care or general practitioner and no longer your oncological team. Yes. So there's this mode of, trying to describe all of your symptoms, not to be too paranoid or overly cautious, Mm -hmm. but, you know, just making sure you have like the right, you're being checked on appropriately. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's kind of two things, right? There's this idea of any ache pain change means my cancer's back. And then as people start to get more distance from their treatment and that memory starts to like ease a little bit so that not every single symptom is triggering that feeling of my cancer's back. I think that's when people start to go, oh, was this my treatment right. that did this? And they might be right that it could be. And I always encourage my patients to reach out because I think that if you are asking someone who wasn't involved with your care, it is sometimes hard for them to tease it apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but for your care providers, I think it's much easier for them to say, oh, Laura, remember when this happened, I bet it's related to your treatment in this way. Sure. And I've seen this happen before and this is what we can do about it or this is what I think is going to happen or it will probably last for another three months and then it'll go away. But being able to put it in that context, I think is so much more helpful than that like swimming in your head going exactly. like, what is this? Right. So I do think a big part of transitioning to wellness is knowing that you don't have to shun your doctors just because you're done and you want to be done so badly. Um, It doesn't mean like sitting in that by yourself. Those are good times to be reaching out and pinging your your team and going, is this this normal? Is this a typical thing? So what are some of those, um, I guess, health risks that we should be concerned about? You mentioned kind of like the cardiac and the heart. Are there warning signs that we should be aware of in our day-to-day that we should then proactively reach out to our doctors? Again, like Uh, brand, like I know we can't speak case by case per individual, but just like in general. Yeah. So the thing about cardiac toxicity is that in general, people are not going to manifest symptoms in the short term. Actually, our cardiology partners, and there's Mm -hmm. now a whole field of cardio-oncology, cardiologists who focus on patients who have been treated for cancer. So our our cardio-oncology partners have actually mapped out the ideal path for patients who have received radiation to the chest or who have received anthracyclines or Herceptin or other um, agents that are associated with cardiac changes, which is that after five years of survivorship, whether you have symptoms or not, you should check in and have a non-invasive stress test because the idea is that even in the general population, these things are indolent. We don't hear about them until somebody has an acute event. And so if we know that we've exposed patients to a treatment that may eventually cause a problem, we should start looking. Right. And so five years is is the time that they've marked as being the first time for someone to look, assuming that they're asymptomatic and they have no no symptoms. That's great. I haven't heard of that before. I'm just going to mark my calendar on that one. So five years. All right. I know I'm giving you another thing to do. No, that's wonderful. (laughs) I know that I believe we did like an echocardio exam prior to treatment. I too was also on Herceptin as well. Uh And then I think we did one at the end of my active treatment just to kind of see if there were any changes. So that was really great just to have that 
on the books as a baseline. That's right. And so for patients that are going to be receiving um, systemic therapies that can have an impact on the heart, it is the standard of care to have this ultrasound done of the heart before you start and after you're done so that they can make sure that if there are any changes that we're paying attention to them and tracking them. And sometimes what we see is that that patients have temporary changes. So mm. we'll see that, you know, the function of the heart may go down a little bit and then it just recovers, right? right? Just much like the rest of you as you're going through cancer sure. therapy. But every once in a while, thankfully rarely, we do see that patients can have cardiac function deficits that persist. Mm. And again, I think now that we're paying more attention to survivorship, we do have this team of people. We have cardiologists whose whole focus is on managing patients who have these side effects. And so now you don't have a team of providers who are floundering outside their expertise. We have these multidisciplinary right. groups where we can refer. And I think that that has been very reassuring for my patients, even if they don't have symptoms, mm -hmm. just to know that if something comes up at some point, that there is a person yes. whose whole job it is to manage that. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think that is huge. Exactly what you're saying with like the advent of survivorship, right? It's not just, you know, here's your active treatment, but what am I supposed to be on top of in terms of making mm -hmm. my appointments, working mm -hmm. with my nurse navigator, or just for my own advocacy, knowing when I should be getting these checkups? Yeah. And I think a big portion of follow-up visits, and this is just a plug for follow-up visits, please follow up with your doctor. Yes. Um, <laughs> because I do think that when I see my patients back in follow-up, they'll say to me, well, I, I saw my surgeon and I had a mammogram and I saw my medical oncologist and I, I saw my nurse practitioner and I saw these people and I have to see you also. Like, how many of these visits do I actually need? And I think that there is this like follow-up exhaustion that mm -hmm. happens. And so that's true and legitimate <laughs> and it's okay to feel burned out by that. But I think that the most important part of those visits, aside from like answering questions or concerns, is making sure that all those survivorship things are in place. Mm -hmm. So half of my visit with patients is, is your next mammogram scheduled? It's not, okay, I'm going to reach out to your surgeon and make sure we get that on the books, right. right? How are you doing with diet and exercise? What's the struggle? What's been the problem? How can we help? Can I refer you to nutrition? Is there like a a wellness program at your local gym or your local Y that I can refer you to? Are you feeling stiff and sore after radiation? Should we get you back into physical therapy, right? Have you met with your doctor to have a non-invasive stress test? This is your five-year mark, right? Thanks. So half of my job in follow-up is just making sure that we like open up that long-term path for yeah. people and that they get all those things done. And so please follow up because I think that that's where these things drop off mm -hmm. because no one wants to go to follow-ups where they know they feel well, they know their mammogram was normal, and now they have to go back and see a whole bunch of other right. people who are going to say, yep, everything's fine. <laughs> which is the great reassuring part, like, it which is. I love. So definitely, I, I'm all about the follow-ups because you get like the A+, plus, the check, but yep. then it's also that psychological piece we were talking about earlier of like, oh my gosh, last time I had my mammogram, it didn't go so well. Mm -hmm. So now you're telling me to go back and keep going back. Like mm -hmm. this is a really stressful step for me. Yep. So I feel like, you know, I have some really great colleagues like, oh, I'm going to be late for work. I, I'll be in by 10. I got a mammogram this morning and my heart stops because I'm like, I know that's nonchalant for you, but like, I really hope it doesn't change your life. Like, you know, it's, it's scary because we've yeah. been diagnosed. Of course. So. And I think that that anxiety around coming back for a mammogram is absolutely real. Mm -hmm. And I see so many women who will call me the week of their mammogram and say, I am feeling really anxious. I felt great. I felt great all year round. And now my mammogram is Thursday and I'm just panicking. Totally, totally. And so I think that's also a great thing to do. I mean, like your providers are your providers for life. They are your team. And so you really should be reaching out and saying, I am feeling really anxious about this because I think that there are strategies that your team can employ, whether it's saying, do you want me to call you as soon as that mammogram is over and give you the results? Right. Or like, how are we going to manage that anxiety today? Mm -hmm. And occasionally, you know, patients need some medical help to feel more sure. calm coming in and taking an Ativan and just feeling like, I can make it through this visit today. Right. But I mean, there's lots of different ways that we can try to manage that. And so I just would encourage patients to reach out. You're never a bother. Right. It is absolutely our privilege and our job to take care of you. I think a lot of times patients feel like, oh, I don't want to bother them. I, you know, I called a couple of weeks ago to ask a question. That's what you should be doing. That's what we want. We want to hear from you. I'm a very big proponent 
of taking time with patients, which I know seems like a small thing, but so much of the way that we trust our providers is getting to know them. And so I think that if you have a provider that can take the time and try to elicit from a patient the fears and the concerns and the anxieties that may prevent them from calling, from reaching out, from asking for help, I think that's often half of the issue, right? Is like building that trust. Because we're, at the end of the day, cultures and resources and whatever aside, we're all people. This is an incredibly scary thing to go through. And so... Being able to just make that connection with a provider, whoever it is, whether it's the nurse practitioner or the nurse or the physician, the nurse navigator, like whoever it is that you find in that process who can connect with you in a way that you say, this is still really scary, but I trust this person enough that, you know, they've asked me to call back and I'm going to call back. So I think half of it is is just building that rapport and that relationship. And then as it relates to resources, yeah, I mean, the difference between Boston and other places around the country, I'm sure, is quite dramatic. But I, I also believe that even in Boston, sometimes people feel like it can be hard to access the resources they need. And so in these mammoth hospitals with tons of resources, you just need someone to pick up the phone and give you the information that you need. And so what I would say is that regardless of where you are, you just need a number. You just need like a reliable way to get in touch with a person who's reliable. Whether that's in Kansas and some nurse says, here's my phone number to my desk. I check it all day long, call and reach out. Or whether it's here in this, you know, mammoth academic center where you just know like, this is the email address that I can reach somebody at. I think that often is the bridge. Mm-hmm. I have a couple more questions. Yeah. If we can go like back inside the radiation room, so to speak. What is the definition? I hear a lot of people talk about getting like at the end of their radiation, getting a boost. Yes. Like where there's like bigger apparatus that like come closer to the chest. And yeah. When I, what, is, what does that mean? What is yeah. a boost? Yeah. So there's all this lingo and like acronyms in radiation oncology. And um, it's it's a bit like alphabet soup. Okay. And so when we train doctors about radiation, even doctors in oncology don't know a lot about radiation. So just to put that out there, if mm-hmm. you're like a listener who's trying to understand radiation therapy and you've heard all these terms, your other doctors probably don't know what they are either. <laughs> but so a boost is the idea of giving a little bit more radiation to a more limited part of your body. So often when we do a boost in breast cancer, because it can be used in lots of different cancer types, we are talking about, you know, we've treated the entire breast for a certain number of weeks. And then we give a boost, which is just an extra amount of radiation just to the lumpectomy cavity where the surgery was. So that's the idea of essentially consolidating Mm -hmm. and giving a little more radiation dose to the area that we think is at highest risk to have a recurrence. So the most likely place to have a recurrence is right where the cancer starts. So we give that a little bit more radiation. That makes sense. And then that is done with like the x-rays, not the protons that you were describing earlier. Right. So the proton beam radiation is just a way of giving radiation. So you could give a boost with protons, just like you could give a boost with x-rays. Got it. So a boost is really about where you're treating, not really with what kind of radiation. Okay. But what you're describing where people are describing this idea that there's uh, some apparatus that comes closer to them. Yeah, I think I made up a um, word there. I'm not sure, like the no, plural of apparatus. No, you're fine. That's great. Um, yeah. so, so I think what they're describing is when we give a boost of radiation to women who are getting x-rays, we actually use a third different type of radiation just to make this more complicated for the listeners. That's something that's called electrons. And so electrons are another way of delivering radiation, and they tend to be very superficial. And so we don't use them for breast cancer treatment usually because we need to penetrate into the breast or into the lymph node stations. But electrons are very good if we're just trying to treat a superficial part in the breast. And so we often use that for the boost portion of treatment. But electrons necessitate using this contraption, essentially, that gets stuck on to the head of the treatment machine because electrons are so superficial. So we almost have to corral them in Mm -hmm. space. So we create this extra cone that helps keep them where they're supposed to go so that as they leave the machine, they hit 
right close to the breast and they don't scatter around elsewhere. Got it. That was like a great depiction for everyone listening. I can, <laughs> it's a little claustrophobic, right? Because it gets so close to you. Um, yes. Um, okay. No neutrons. No, no, they don't work. We did use them for radiation. They don't work particularly well, so we don't use them anymore. <laughs> but yet we now covered all of the subatomic oh, no. particles. <laughs> there will be a quiz afterwards. <laughs> yeah, another question that I hear too is, if lymph nodes are involved and a patient has had some lymph nodes removed mm-hmm. and then they still get radiation, mm-hmm. they have um, a higher probability of developing lymphedema. Yes. Why is that? Do you know? I mean, yeah. Do you know why? Can I ask you? <laughs> yeah, you can ask me. Um, so I can tell you in general why we think it happens. Um, and there's lots of research going on into lymphedema. Again, okay. it's all part of this idea that survivorship is important and we should be following patients for things that may not impact survival, but impact quality of life. Right. So there are a lot of studies related to lymphedema. But um, the idea is that, and again, just uh, to go back to kind of the fundamentals of breast cancer and how we think about breast cancer moving in the body. Mm-hmm. So if you have a cancer that's in the breast, you have these lymph channels, which are these tiny little channels that kind of permeate through all of the tissue in your whole body, including the breast. And so there's fluid, lymph fluid, that's bathing the tissues in your whole body all the time. And so these channels drain those fluid into lymph nodes And so you have lymph nodes throughout your body, but you have a lot of them underneath your arm. The idea is that if you have a cancer in your breast and these lymph fluids are bathing the breast, that cancer cells could leave with some of that fluid, travel into these little tiny channels, and then make their way into the lymph nodes. And that would be a way that cancer could spread. So when we take lymph nodes out at the time of surgery, we're disrupting this network of channels. And so if we only take out a few lymph nodes, the network doesn't get disrupted that much. And so all of the fluid that bathes your arm or bathes your shoulder continues to drain nicely through that network. If we take out a lot of lymph nodes, we've disrupted that highway. And so then the fluid doesn't have an easy way to leave the arm and then you get lymphedema. The idea is that if you have surgery and we've kind of disrupted that highway and then we give radiation, we disrupt the highway a little bit more. Okay. And so it's this cumulative effect on the lymph nodes. We can see there's a lot of different studies that people have done looking at fluid and like watching it track. And so you can see like where it starts to get backed up as a consequence of the surgery and the radiation. Okay. So we know that more treatment, meaning more surgery or more radiation, increases the likelihood that we're going to disrupt that highway of channels. Mm-hmm. Now I think there's more of an emphasis on reducing surgery and using radiation if we need to treat the lymph nodes because we know if we do both, the risk is double. If we take away the surgery, the risk goes down. We're just trying to think of kind of the least invasive way of treating those areas to cause fewer side effects. That makes sense. So exactly what's happening like on a cellular level, mm-hmm. that part I, I wouldn't be able to describe to you oh, very sure. well. No, but, but I think it's here. just mechanically. It's it's truly like a mechanical disruption in how the fluid can flow. That makes a lot of sense. Because I hear a lot of times too with different, you know, how many lymph nodes were involved or how many have you had removed? And it was news to me that everyone has a different number of lymph nodes under their arm too. So while some may say five or six or seven or 14 or upwards mm-hmm. of 20, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of numbers. And then talking to other people who develop lymphedema right away or don't have any signs of it until 15 years later, and then all of a sudden it starts showing up yep. and then kind of figuring out, okay, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And then being exposed then to the radiation really just, you know, you're trying to survive breast cancer. And then at the end of the day, you're like, Now I have to manage like heart risk with the radiation. Mm -hmm. Now I have to be concerned about lymphedema. Now I have to be concerned of, like you were saying, all these longer term survivorship components that are in the back of our minds. And it's a lot to manage. It is a lot to manage. And I think um, there's only so much that any person can take on. And so I think a big part of going through this is having people be able to put it in context, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the likelihood that these things are going to happen? Because if the likelihood is very, very tiny, you should not be spending the mental energy that you have worrying about those. But if the likelihood is higher, then 
those are things to pay really more point. attention to. Yes. I think that as the research gets better, we have much better data about like your risk of lymphedema is 5%. Your risk of lymphedema is 25%. Right. Right. And so your doctors can tell you that when you talk to them based on the surgery and the radiation and the chemotherapy that you've received. And then that helps them tell you what they think you need from a maintenance yeah. or follow-up standpoint. But I think it also puts it into context for you. If you're walking around thinking about every side effect that you've signed away <laughs> on a consent form, you would not uh, be able to put one foot in front of Oh my of God, the there other. was definitely a day like that. Like I'm at the gym and I'm wearing like the lymphedema sleeve because I had my lymph nodes removed. And I'm like, okay, they told me to lift some weights because I don't want to lose too much muscle mass and bone mass, but I can't lift too much because that might trigger something. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like looking in the mirror, just like having a breakdown of like, is it two pounds? Is it three pounds? Is it five pounds? Like, I'm just going to give up entirely. <laughs> like I tried working out. It's not going to work. So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of cognitive discord that goes on and yeah, we just get through it. Yeah. All. And it feels completely unfair. Oh, totally. <laughs> right. You've done everything possible to try to manage right. the symptoms. And here you are trying to now navigate exactly how many pound weights right. can I lift exactly. above my head. And then God forbid you get like a mosquito bite and it's all over. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. I'm trying to think with uh, radiation. I had a really great experience with radiation. Again, going in for like six weeks, Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. you really do become like best friends with these people. You see them every day. Yep. And it was really funny because we always ended up talking about our shoes. Mm-hmm. That was the one thing, I don't know if it comes up in your clinic, but it's like the one thing that you're like, you're in this Johnny in this gown and yeah. you're like, well, here I am. And here's one way for me to show my personality. Mm-hmm. So it was like my radiation shoes or my sneakers. Cause I'm going to go running. And then yeah. It really just became a point of conversation and a way of showing like individuality. Yeah. So that was and we see that actually do not you? infrequently, <laughs> not just with shoes, though I have seen it with shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I often see it in patients with jewelry, like the oh, earrings they wear yeah. that day, or for patients who have gone through chemo. I had a patient who had 10 different wigs and she would wear nice. a different one each day. And so she had a hot pink one and she had it right. And so oh, yeah. it was her way of conveying her mood for the day, mm-hmm. which I thought was actually very clever mm-hmm. because it helped everybody else take care of her. When she was having a good day, everybody knew it. Yep. And when she wasn't, everybody knew it. So yeah, so there's lots of ways that I think people try to express themselves during that process. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Yeah. Because I think that there is this like de-individuation that happens as you're going through treatment. Right. Right. Like you become another person, another cog in the wheel of mm-hmm. like this infusion chair, right? Right, right? Or you're in this treatment room. Mm-hmm. Like it's very easy, I think, for patients to feel like they are a number. Mm-hmm. So insisting that you're not, yes. I think is great. Great tactics. What- how, how do you attract qualified and very competent students to follow you in your field? In radiation oncology? That's a great question. Um, So I'm the Associate Residency Program Director at Mass General for um, our radiation oncology residents. And I would say that a lot of it, I think, is trying to show them what we actually do every day because I love my job. And I think that I think that when you when you love the things that you do and you love the patients that you care for, that that comes through for your students. So I think it's really about trying to expose them to that. I think the real challenge is not so much in attracting the students to residency training. It's keeping people engaged during residency training because it can be such a difficult process to go through. And so the idea of trying to give resident physicians that joy in what they do, I think is really important because what they see from us is in some ways, a role modeling of what they're going to be when they start practicing. And as we talked about, burnout is real. (laughs) And so seeing that in the doctors that you work with, it it can be very discouraging. And I'm sure that we all have our days where we're really not operating at our best. But giving trainees, I think, the opportunity for joy is the way that they get to be good doctors. And personally, I think the way we give them joy is letting them take care of patients because that's why we went into medicine. So when they have an interaction with a patient and they meet someone and they really connect with them, I think yeah. that that just does it. That's well, you awesome. You seem to have great passion for your jobs. Yes. Uh, 
I know. Are we going into radiation oncology <laughs> now? <laughs> you know about the protons and electrons. Well, you guys are experts now. You've done like every field. Huh. One last question. I appreciate you taking the time and going over so many topics. One question that we haven't yet discussed was recommendations to those who are actively going through radiation treatment right yeah. now. I know I'm always talking about like lathering up with all sorts of lotions um, after the treatment themselves. Mm -hmm. Is there any like best practices or best tips that you would recommend? That's great. I actually feel like you would probably be more of an expert on that (laughs) than I would. Um, In general, what I tell patients is if they're seeing me after chemotherapy and surgery, when they're still recovering, Mm -hmm. I try to caution them against doing too much just because I think that they are feeling better and there is this temptation to rush back into like, I can't wait to get back to the gym. Right. Or whatever it is that brings people satisfaction about like moving and using their body in a way that feels meaningful after so many months of not being able to do that. And I just caution them to take it easy because I think that there's this feeling like you feel great in the moment and then it's like a truck has hit you the next day and you think like, but I didn't do that much. All I did was... (laughs) Right. So um, so this idea of just being really like gentle with yourself as you're going through treatment and also gentle with yourself kind of emotionally, because as we talked about, I think radiation is not hard physically. Mm -hmm. It doesn't hurt. You feel okay, But emotionally, it's really hard. You know, that going back and forth all the time, that almost being done, but not quite being done, that like I'm sick of all of this, but I still have to show up every day. I think that just weighs on people. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that you're not being overly sensitive, you're not being overly emotional, this is a real thing, and that you have to be really gentle and kind to yourself is important. And then in terms of like skincare and moisturizing, I personally just feel like people have to keep up with skincare that they can keep up with, right? So people are going back to work. Sometimes patients get stressed out that they like haven't been able to, you know, they I didn't get be able to go to this, go into the bathroom and put on this cream because I had this meeting and then I had this other right. thing. Like, it's okay. We just, we have to like, just take it as it comes. So be good about trying to protect your skin. And my personal feeling is it doesn't really matter what you use to protect your skin. Any over-the-counter moisturizer is fine as long as you're regular about it. Mm -hmm. And then just knowing as you start to see skin changes, because one of the main side effects from breast radiation is skin irritation, redness, and sometimes peeling of the skin is just knowing that it will heal. It will go back to normal. You know, you've had so many insults to your body that this one just feels like ah, the last one. Right. But knowing that it, it will heal and go back to looking like your normal skin, I think, is is reassuring. Yeah. I remember moisturizing a ton. I had, like, this old T-shirt because the lotion kept, like, staining mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. clothes. But before bed, I was just like, doesn't matter. I'm going to lather up. I yep. wear this old T-shirt. And then my other piece of advice is if you're just getting radiation on one side, don't forget to moisturize your other side because it really helps with all the scars and everything that you just went through as well. Mm-hmm. So that way, at the end of the six weeks of radiation, you will have baby soft skin, hopefully. So, yeah. But don't forget the other side. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great, great suggestion. And then just keep moisturizing. So yeah. that's what I tell patients too, is that even once your skin has gone back to its normal pigment, everything's looking healed. It's still more prone to being dry and to feeling a little bit firmer than the rest of your skin. So vitamin E cream is really good as a way to try to keep the skin soft and pliable and um, just kind of ongoing care for yourself because we certainly see that as patients finish radiation, the muscles in the chest wall can get radiation and that can make things feel tighter over time. Mm. So if you're a person who is really in tune with your body and you're going to the gym and you feel like, how come I can't stretch as well on one side versus another? That's us. We did that. So (laughs) I think um, yoga, Pilates, like some kind of active exercise routine helps keep those muscles really engaged and without getting too firm. And so we've obligated you to taking even more care of yourself, um, but in a way that I think helps keep you feeling more like your body is yours. Those are great ideas. I did my first Pilates class two weeks ago. It was unbelievable. I need to find like a class pass and do it more. But for the stretching alone, it was just like, I've never moved my body in that kind of like, I mean, I know it's about to start snowing in Boston, but like almost like a snow angel, right? Like where you're bringing your hands up and down and like really opening up that part of your chest wall. So yeah. And I think it's just, it's so important for people to have an ongoing way to be active 
in general, we tell people it doesn't matter which way as long as you find a way that you enjoy. But I think in terms of minimizing side effects from surgery and radiation, doing things that really stretch and engage your chest and your shoulder are important long-term. Excellent. Have we forgotten anything? Are there any other like last tidbits that we haven't touched upon that you would like our listeners to know? Um, I don't know. We had a pretty wide-ranging list of questions. Um, (laughs) Painless, isn't it? Yeah, I think if if listeners are have heard our discussion and still have a lot of questions about radiation therapy, because again, it, it does seem a little bit more like a black box than surgery or chemotherapy, which we hear about and can kind of envision mm-hmm. more. I think I would just encourage you to reach out to your providers and um, not rely too heavily on word of mouth because everybody's experience is a little bit different. So certainly solicit that information, but just know that your experience may be unique to someone else's. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. This is so exciting. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed it and had fun. Thank you all for tuning in and listening to today's episode. We release episodes each week, typically on Mondays. If you have a topic idea or would like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. We love hearing from you. Please remember that the content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in our podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our workplaces. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Until next time, keep on thriving.